Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Casey Lynch, CEO and co-founder of Roundhouse, a fully integrated developer and operator of multi-family housing. Today, Roundhouse focuses exclusively on providing high-quality housing options in emerging cities across the Western United States with a pristine focus on design and an approach that is very, very unique compared to all of their competitors. We discuss how Casey thinks about designing and building buildings for a very long-term hold period, how he structures his deals, how he creates waterfalls to incentivize him and the team over a long-term hold period, and how Casey is building enterprise value at Roundhouse so he can eventually take a step back, and let the business run itself and over time create tremendous value for himself, his team members, and all of his investors. It is an awesome conversation. Please enjoy my talk with Casey. So I think a really good place to start would be to kind of understand your first real estate deal, because I think you did it in 2009 when that was basically the new start of a real estate cycle. And you also formed a new partnership. I think that's really relevant for a lot of folks out there today. So I kind of wanted to start there and learn how that first deal went in the context of this new real estate cycle and a new partnership. Yeah. Thanks for thanks again for having me, Jake. I guess needless to say, we started at the very, very bottom rung of the ladder. (laughs) I uh, actually had been living in New York, working on Wall Street, and really wanted to move to California. My two best friends had moved to LA, and I grew up in the West and realized I was not an East Coast guy as much as I love it. And so, the easiest path for me was to go back to grad school, which I did. I enrolled at UCLA for a business school, and the very first day of school, I sit down This guy sits down next to me, full sleeve tattoos, wearing Carhartts, looking completely out of place (laughs) in business school. I always thought of myself as a nonconformist, but he was uh, taking it to another level. He says, hey, I'm Mike. What's your story? I said, I'm Casey. I'm actually from Idaho. And he said, oh, yeah, my best friend's from Idaho, went to a school called the Community School, which is, of course, where I went to school and I knew the guy very well. And the guy sitting next to me was named Mike Brown. And we, uh, while we were in school, ended up becoming good friends. And we were both pursuing careers in real estate. 
And it happened to coincide with the financial crisis. We started school in 2007 and we showed up our second year, 2008, just after Lehman crashed. And our professor, Stuart Gabriel, was a former Fed economist and we were sitting in class with him and he comes into school every day just sweating, like thinking the world is completely coming to an end. And anyway, we ended up putting together a business plan to buy a portfolio of single family homes out of foreclosure and convert them to rental properties. And we spent our second year driving around Southern California, looking at homes that had, you know, these broken developments, subdivisions, and just the grimmest stuff you can possibly imagine. <laughs> and, but we decided to just go for it. And we forewent the opportunity to recruit for traditional jobs. And we started fundraising. We tried to raise a $5 million fund to buy houses, and we were only able to raise a million and forty thousand dollars. The forty thousand came from me and Mike, <laughs> 20 k each, and my twenty k was like ten thousand left over from my student loans. And uh, my granddad gave me ten thousand dollars, and my dad gave me five thousand bucks, and that's that's how we got started. And we, our first investment was a condo we bought out of foreclosure in Fontana, California, which is a kind of eastern suburb of LA. We bought it for $55,000. And we, uh, Mike, my partner had come from the construction industry. So he forced me to go to Home Depot with him and bought a bunch of materials. And it was like, literally the week after we graduated from school, it was like 115 degrees outside. <laughs> Someone had stolen the HVAC compressor. So we're just sweltering in there, painting this place, fixing up ourselves. And and we put it on Craigslist and we listed it for rent and we rented it out to a nurse for $1,050 a month. And that was our, that was our first investment. Why residential? You know, it was just really the opportunity at the time. And it just so happened that, you know, buying houses is a very easy entry point. And as you know, real estate is one of the most entrepreneurial industries and there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. But residential at the time was where the opportunity was. And fortunately for us, it turned out to be a 15-year opportunity with a big tailwind behind it. You know, our ambition was not to own a portfolio of houses, but that's how we got started. And it just so happened to be a great opportunity to invest at the time. You know, we were buying properties and doing mid-teens cash-on-cash returns and, you know, single-family homes in Southern California, which is completely unheard of. And then, of course, you know, when we when we started with that business plan, people thought we had like three eyes, you know, like, wait a second, you know, we're in the midst of a housing crash and this is what you guys want to do. <laughs> and as you know, in the coming years, all the, the big guys started getting into that business and created a whole new industry, essentially. But by that time, we had largely exited our portfolio and moved on to, to other things. What did you move on to? Well, the next two businesses were essentially buying really infill, very old rent-controlled apartment buildings in Los Angeles, retenanting them, doing major gut rehabs, you know, buildings built in the 20s, 30s, 40s in kind of emerging neighborhoods, which is actually one of the things that came out of the single family business. Because we were so unsuccessful at raising money, we had to really focus and at that time, a lot of our friends in LA were being priced out of the neighborhoods that you would traditionally want to live in. And they were moving to these 
areas that most people had never heard of. You know, in, in 2009, 10, if you asked 100 people in LA where Highland Park was or Atwater Village, you know, maybe a, a handful of them would be able to identify those neighborhoods, even though they were very central. You know, these were some of the very first actually subdivisions and or suburbs technically of LA in, you know, the early 20th century. And that's where our friends were moving because that's where the only place they could afford to live. So we really focused on those neighborhoods, which ended up becoming like the hottest emerging markets in LA for the subsequent decade. So we started buying eight to 20 unit apartment buildings. And then we started doing land entitlement because we, or I guess two things kind of happened. One, we started selling the houses that we had bought and even in 2011, we'd get like 20 offers and we're thinking, what's going on here? You know, the economy is still really soft. Every offer was from like two 27-year-old working professional attorneys, doctors, type people, and their parents were helping them with the down payment. And at the time, you know, we were buying the houses for like 250000 selling them for 500000 Today, those houses are worth like $1.2 million. So that was one thing we were like very surprised at the amount of demand that there was, even in a really soft economy. And then we started doing entitlement work to build, you know, new new multifamily in central LA and got a very rapid education into how the real world works, <laughs> learning politics and bureaucracy and all these things that you don't learn in graduate school. And we were like, wait a second, this is a recipe for disaster. Like, there's a ton of demand. California essentially makes it impossible to produce new housing. We think there's going to be a housing affordability crisis and people are going to start looking to move to more affordable cities. And this was in 2011. And so we got on a plane and we went to like 40 different cities all around the Western US. And even then, kind of Austin and Denver were already kind of figured out. And we got off the plane in Boise, Idaho, and we come downtown and we're like, wow, this is really nice. <laughs> it's clean. People are friendly. It's super walkable. It's vibrant. And we went and we checked into our hotel and we came back out like two hours later to go to dinner and there were tumbleweeds in the streets. <laughs> like, wait a second, we were just walking around two hours ago, there's people milling about all over the place, birds chirping, the whole thing, and then now there's nobody, it's empty. What is going on? And it turns out that, I mean, when I say zero, I mean zero housing had been built in downtown Boise in like 30 years. And it was just this perfect storm of opportunity and us having learned all these lessons in a big city like LA, that we're like, wait a second, you know, downtown LA had gone through a very similar renaissance, which, you know, again, you would think big, big LA, downtown LA. Well, downtown LA was really only started to come back in the early, you know, 2000s. And we figured, hey, if, you know, if people can build housing in downtown LA and every other metro kind of urban environment in the West, why not Boise? And so that was the light bulb moment for us. Okay. So you're, in LA, you're two guys. I don't think you had much of an infrastructure yet. And you're already looking in other markets. Thinking back on that, was that 
a crazy idea or is that actually the biggest realization and transition point in your company because you found what was this crisis or this shortage but you couldn't really act on it in LA and then you pivoted to another market a lot of people would say hey you know you could get eaten alive in a new market yeah i think you know i'm a i am a nonconformist and we have tried to build our business in a very non-conventional way and going back to being in school you know these developers would come in and speak to our class i remember one guy in particular you know he had just finished this like condo tower in koreatown in la you know he spent eight years building this just immaculate beautiful like you know the apex of what you would think you would want in your career as a real estate developer and he was handing the keys back to wells fargo the next day and I, you know we're sitting there thinking like man we really want to be in this industry we you know we love real estate we want to be developers but we do not ever want to be in that position how do we avoid that <laughs> and you know on the other hand you look at how do private people invest in real estate how do you, you know individuals invest in real estate and it's a, it's, a, it's a total mismatch right like the kind of wall street you know we can talk more about this if you want but financialization of real estate as an asset class has been a fairly recent phenomenon in particular in multifamily it's been very recent but for centuries people wealthy families etc have been investing in real estate in a very different way which is with a very long-term focus and i actually find it's much easier to prognosticate long-term trends than it is short-term <laughs> movement in real estate and when we came to boise for example it could not have been more obvious when we went to bozeman montana it could not have been more obvious to us that these are places that you want to invest in for the long term and if i could ascribe you know we've had a lot of luck and good fortune but the, the 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 biggest piece of luck that we have had in our business was in that first fund of a million dollars there were seven investors six of them were literal friends and family <laughs> you know my wife's uncle my partner's dad you know and we we met with probably 150 high net worth investors in LA and every one of them declined to invest except for one person put in $100,000 into that fund and today that that family is our largest single LP they have uh, hundreds of millions of dollars invested with us and when we went to them after we had had these early successes you know we had kind of climbed a couple rungs of the ladder and we said hey we're going to Boise Idaho we're going to Colorado Springs Colorado what do you think sounds like a great idea <laughs> let's do it and if we had been focused on a more traditional kind of private equity path or which is more common in our industry you couldn't have done it you couldn't have convinced Carlisle or Oak Tree or whomever to to invest in Boise Idaho in 2011 and 12 but this private capital was and we've just adhered to that very closely you know for the entirety of our business so would it have played out exactly as it did over the past few years in our minds no not necessarily you know it could have taken much longer but fast forward to today and these markets that we're in are on the front page of the wall street journal and every private equity <laughs> institutional investor is taking a look at them when they wouldn't have you know even four or five years ago 
How did you learn early on to structure your deals and set up your platform with this very long-term horizon? Or did you not maybe internalize that at that time and it just so happened that you were going to invest over longer periods than traditional private equity real estate? We thought a lot about it. I mean, even those early apartment buildings, we thought we would never sell them. I mean, we ended up selling them for other reasons, but we th- are, we went into them thinking we we're going to own these things forever. And how do you do that <laughs> when we had nothing but sweat equity? And one of the other pieces of good fortune for us was that we met very early on, who I think is one of the premier multifamily investors in the country, is a company called Nalls, N-A-L-S, based in Santa Barbara. <laughs> and they had started exactly the same way as us, buying these little apartment buildings in LA, In the except they started in the early 90s. And we had the good fortune of meeting them and meeting their founder and being able to talk to him and learn about how they approach the business. And we essentially copied their model, which is a cash flow-based promote structure that really creates incentives for the GP to hold long-term. And these family office investors that we were working with loved it. You know, they didn't want us to be churning in and out of stuff. They wanted us to be finding or building really high quality real estate assets that we could own for decades. And again, it's not to say that we do, I mean, we do sell, but our intent with everything we buy is we're going to own this for a really long time. And so you're thinking about real estate in a very different way, (laughs) especially in development, how you build buildings, the materials and building systems that you use, location, picking markets. Again, picking markets like a Boise that could take decades to mature, and but maybe maybe not. Picking markets where, and this is a really big, big piece of it, where you're not competing with institutional capital. And but our eight and especially again in a, in a Bozeman and a Boise, for example, you know, we've been able to build and acquire many of the highest quality multifamily assets in these markets where we could never compete on that level, even with where we are today in Seattle or LA, because you're competing against an entirely different set of, of players. So how do you avoid? Well, let me ask it this way. Are you avoiding institutional capital by the markets you're selecting or by the investment approach you're making? So for example, are you willing to pay maybe a little bit more for an asset than an institutional player who has to sell in five years? Or is there something else that's in your secret sauce that you're doing? Because eventually all these equity firms are probably going to get to some of these markets that you're in if they're not already there. That I think is the biggest risk for our industry. <laughs> you know, entrepreneurs like myself and a lot of our our peers going forward. Historically, for us, it was about market selection, right? It was saying the the perceived risk of Colorado Springs was liquidity. If you are an institutional investor and you need to sell, or you're investing in a fund structure and you need to sell, what does liquidity look like in Boise, Idaho at that moment in time? But if you don't care about that, it completely changes the way you evaluate investment opportunities. Now that has changed, right? Because these 
these markets are not <clears throat> as a liquid as they used to be, and there is institutional investment in them now. So for us, it is about a few things. One, knowing our markets better than anybody else and being able to, on the acquisition side, select the best priced, best quality, best located assets. Still in a lot of our markets, like Montana and Idaho, there's a lot of off-market activity, a lot of direct relationships that we're using to source opportunities. And on the development side, it's very simple. We're not trying to boil the ocean. We're not trying to build, you know, 5,000 units a year. We're trying to build one, two, three, you know, fully amenitized institutional scale projects of the absolute highest quality. And we do tend to spend more than our merchant builder competitors, but in the way that we've analyzed it, it tends to be in five to 10% more. And most of that money is spent on building systems that are more efficient and will last longer. Some of it is in materials and finishes, but it's mostly building systems. And we're okay with that because we know we're going to be paid back for that over the long term. And in fact, in many cases, we're paid for it in the short term as well. We attract higher quality residents. We have higher retention. We have less turnover. And in many cases, we, we do command rent premiums for our assets. So that's kind of how we approach it. The last piece of it is vertical integration, which, as you know, is if you're competing against private equity or you're competing against a lot of institutional capital, it's just something that they don't do. You know, so for us, it's if there's any long-term competitive advantage, it's, it's those two things. It's being able to develop assets and being vertically integrated and being able to operate your own assets. A lot of people turn to private equity because of the deeper pockets. I mean, the structures are typically worse. You lose a lot of control that you would ordinarily have if you were running your own deal with a family or dispersed group of individual investors. How have you figured out solving for the capital size so you don't need to go to someone with very deep pockets for one deal, for an acquisition, for development, whatever it may be? Yeah, I mean, look, if you're approaching this business as a, a GP or a sponsor, an operator, your ability to raise capital directly is one of the biggest advantages that you can have. <laughs> and it's just not the norm in our industry because it's hard. It's hard. It's a different bit. It's a different thing, right? To be able to market yourself and generate these relationships and manage the relationships. And at the same time, you know, it's not like you're investing in public equities, right? I mean, you're out there <laughs> building buildings, dealing with contractors and architects and mayors and city councils and, you know, angry neighbors and angry residents. And, you know, you go on, this is a hard business. This is an operating business, right? You're not just sitting at your desk pushing buttons. And so, to be able to do both of those things, they're very different skill sets, which is why a lot of real estate entrepreneurs, they come from a background where, yeah, they're really good at development or they're really good at finding acquisition opportunities, but they just, they don't have the time or they don't have the skill set to figure out how to raise capital directly. So they 
turn to the very robust and deep private equity pool in our industry where you you know it's just a it's just a commodity basically it's a, it's an open marketplace to say here's my opportunity i'm going to put it out to 50 different private equity investors and whoever gives me the best terms i'll sign you up and it's one check there's nothing wrong with doing the business that way don't you know don't don't read me the wrong way here but for me i view that as you know you're working for them <laughs> and you don't own anything right i mean you you have a a promote interest you get some fees etc but you don't control the investment you're essentially in my view an employee at that point which is not my objective so then how do you structure your deals with your investors depending on if it's an acquisition or development and what does the control rights look like typically yeah so i mean we we have kind of three pools of capital we have you know large single family offices that we work with uh, we'll syndicate investments amongst a group of high net worth investors and then we do have one institutional capital partner which is actually a public company so it's slightly unusual in that they invest with us off of their balance sheet so it is long-term capital it's not within a fund structure and we we tend to use two financial structures for all of our investments for our development projects we tend to only work with large single family office uh, investors in development projects you know as you know as you can be the best developer in the world and you're oh, you're going to encounter issues and you need somebody that is able to understand those and work collaboratively to solve issues that inevitably come up in development and we tend to use a crystallization structure for those investments where you know you'll have a more traditional waterfall structure and at completion and stabilization when there's a refinance completed you run the the waterfall based on the hypothetical cash flows of the appraised value at that time and then you reset the capital accounts thereafter so the gp's interest becomes an lp interest and there's no longer a promote structure going forward so it's perry pursue and you're standing in the shoes as an lp at that point in time so in that deal like theoretically you could get up to a 30 percent, 20 percent future ownership stake in this apartment that you could hold on to forever with all the depreciation and other benefits of ownership you're an owner you're an owner which is my, my goal right i mean and you know i think the issue a lot of operators have with that type of structure is how do you pay the bills <laughs> how do you feed your family right well i said to you how do you buy the ranch in idaho how do you buy the ranch right and i think you know the answer for me is you got to be disciplined and you got to be patient right and we just you know we for the better part of 10 years you know we didn't have an acquisitions person we didn't have a cfo you know i taught myself quickbooks and i was a bookkeeper for three years and you know i got my real estate brokerage license in california to generate some income on the side <laughs> and with the just assiduous focus on building up passive income streams 
And, you know, when you're, even for us, when we're, in the, you know, probably up until, you know, 2016, 2017, I mean, these are very incremental numbers. <laughs> you know, you're not buying the ranch with the kind of income we were generating, but you just keep focusing and keep focusing on them and building up, building up, and they start getting bigger and bigger. And then you get to the point where, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying anything that people don't already know, but you, you, you can live off of them and then you, you have more than you need to live off of and you can start reinvesting more in your own investments and it compounds. But it's just really, it's the discipline and the methodical approach uh, that you kind of have to take with every investment, in my opinion. I want to come back to something, but on your acquisition deals where it's not development, are those structured differently? Or are you still basically getting to a crystallization event? Those we structured differently, and this is the model that we we took from Nulls, which is a cash flow based promote structure. So, cash flows from operations are treated discreetly from cash flows from capital events. So, if there's a capital event, a refinance, a sale, one hundred percent of the proceeds go goes first to repay any capital that was contributed to the investment. And then profits are split thereafter. Uh, but operating income after a, in our case, a 5% preferred return, the operating income is split 80-20 between the GP and LP. And you know, a lot of people are like, oh, that's that's a crazy generous structure for <laughs> for the GP. And all you got to do is go out and find, you know, deals that yield a five percent and you're making money. It's like we are not going out and just trying to find <laughs> deals that that are going to generate a you know a six IRR. That is not our objective, right? We we are trying to do great investments, and we have <laughs> we have an incredible track record. But we are almost, we're never incentivized to sell. We're incentivized to generate as much income as you possibly can from the assets. And that's what everybody wants. That's the most tax efficient thing to do. Over the long term, it's good for the LPs. You're not churning investments, generating a bunch of fees for yourself, having every, you know, our, most of our investments are individual US taxpayers. These are you're not, you know, pension funds who are tax exempt. So they, they should care a lot about their after tax returns. You know, you can utilize 1031 exchanges as well and the private real estate model. That you can't when you're investing through a fund typically or when you're investing with you know private equity joint venture partners so yeah so that's that's our model i love it i'm gonna copy it i think but when you get i mean in your business you probably have to do like what two or three refis to get to the point where you're have returned all the capital or have you found that you could almost do it in one shot yeah, you know, it's hard to generalize. I mean, we've had a lot of one-shot investments where we're buying stuff at the right right place at the right time and for the right basis, and we've been able to return 100% plus in some cases of capital within, you know, a handful of years. We completed a development project uh, two years ago where at refi, we returned 135% of the equity. Now, again, 
right? You know, great timing in that case. Good timing. <laughs> but yeah, you know, again, we find, and, and I think coming back to what I was saying earlier, like I will take an investment that generates the bulk of it ret- of its return from income from operations <laughs> any day of the week over a speculative investment where you're banking on appreciation or cap rate compression or whatever to to generate the return. And in our experience, and this is some sounds somewhat counterintuitive, but it is acquiring the highest quality assets for the right price that allows you to do that. In multifamily in particular, if you are buying older properties, you will almost always get eaten alive from CapEx. And most of what is marketed as value add is really, I hate to use the term, but lipstick on a pig. And in fact, most of the rent, the value add rent growth is really coming from market rent growth. And in any given real estate cycle, seven out of 10 years are years where things are going up and you can make you can make lots of money doing that but if you get caught in 2023 owning a big portfolio of low quality older assets independently of how you've capitalized them by the way uh you are you're going to be you know throwing money back into the the property just to keep it operating and you know we've we learned that lesson we started out buying older older properties, you know, at, at ridiculously low bases because of the time, the timing in the market. And still it was hard to generate income from the properties. And that's one other point I should make is that, you know, we almost always use 10-year fixed rate agency financing. Another lesson we learned from Nulls. <laughs> and again, in a lot of time, a lot of points in the cycle, you're leaving money on the table, quote unquote. But in my view, you're locking your largest property level expense for 10 years, it gives you a much greater ability to underwrite the investment and to predict what the, you know, cash flows will be from the investment. And you're not speculating on interest rates. And again, for, for our investor base, that's it works for them, right? They're they're very happy to get a distribution check every quarter. <laughs> and if things go well, the property also goes up in value or, you know, in the case of development or when we do do value add, you know, you're, you're creating value. So we have a deal that has 10 year fixed rate debt on it and we acquired it in 2019. It's a tremendous asset. And during COVID, you know, obviously it wasn't doing distributions in the hospitality business. It eventually started resuming again but it was really nice to know that covid you know the worst impact to hospitality would probably end up being just a blip on a 10 year return whereas if your hold period is 3 years that's your whole investment your whole investment's wiped out if that's how you are set up and it really made me think about the future going forward but the one thing i keep bumping into is kind of capex spend during that 10-year period, like a new renovation where you're going to have to either infuse capital or reserve a significant amount of capital to go do it. How do you guys think about CapEx projects 
on the multifamily side in a significant way over your hold period? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's a different business than than hospitality, you know, where you every seven years you have to go in and <laughs> completely <laughs> transform your asset. That's yeah, you can get away with 10 maybe, but like <laughs> you're doing something in that room in seven years for sure. Yeah. Again, part of it is is only acquiring, you know, newly built assets. What does that mean? You know, to us, that means things built typically in the last 10, maybe 20 years. On development projects, that means, again, spending the money up front <laughs> on building systems that are going to be more durable over longer periods of time, whether that's windows or boilers or HVACs or whatever it might be. It's an incremental cost. You know, again, you're talking about maybe 5 7% more up front. But if your model is as a merchant builder, you, that, that's cutting right into your margin. That might be your whole margin. <laughs> and so you're never going to do that. And then you look around and, you know, five years down the road, you're like, man, that building looks terrible. <laughs> um, or that building's having all kinds of CapEx issues. So, you know, but in multifamily, and I mean, I'm sure you do, you do the same thing, but we just set aside reserves and we account for that in our budgets. And, you know, for the most part in multifamily, it's what we call replacements, which is, you know, ongoing CapEx. But, you know, again, when you, when you, when you talk about CapEx, th this is where, you know, I think our industry gets a lot of things wrong is almost none of it is voluntary, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, again, when you're looking at these value-add investments, people, they position it as, oh, this is voluntary, you know, we're we're going to upgrade the clubhouse or we're going to put in new pool furniture or whatever we're doing. It's voluntary. We're increasing the, the, the appeal of the, the property. I mean, no, I mean, almost none of it is voluntary. Almost all of it is you're either functionally obsolete or you are you have so much deferred maintenance that you can't even operate the property without remediating these things. And you know, just putting in new, you know, vinyl flooring and new plumbing fixtures, like, it's not value add. I mean, value add to me is I have some, like what we started doing earlier, and I have some friends in LA that still, you know, buy these really old buildings, they completely gut renovate them, they change, you know, they, they bring everything up to functional modernity and code and quality and that to me is value add, right? You're like, <laughs> you know, we took this building built in 1940 and we've, you know, we're taking it down to the studs and putting in new windows and new systems and everything. That's value add. Uh, but that's hard to do. In fact, that's harder to do than development, in my opinion. But and most of what... And more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it comes down to what is... Doesn't matter whether it's value add or any type of... What is the basis at which you are acquiring the property? <laughs> And can you, at that basis, afford to operate this property in the highest quality way? And the other model that works is the slumlord model. But personally, I'm not interested in that model. I spoke to someone else and there's a lot of headaches in that. So I, I don't know that uh, that's a good way to go. It's not going to look good on your website either. Your website's so pretty with all these nice assets and some C-class apartments might not do it. Yeah, but you know, multifamily has changed tremendously in that regard. I mean, 
I'll, I'll get this exact statistics wrong, but over the past decade, almost 100% of renter growth in the United States has been from high-income households. I think the high-income number is like 75 or 100K a year or something like that. And these people who are, in many cases, voluntarily uh, you know, electing to rent as opposed to purchase a home. And there's a lot of reasons why that is, you know, more mobility, people are getting married later, having kids later, uh, they like the financial flexibility, you know, and, and, and much of it really is frankly just delaying home purchases, really. But if you add that up, if, if every person, if the median home homeowner, you know, 20 years ago, home, home buyer was, you know, 27 and now they're 35, I mean, that creates tens of millions of new renter households, right? And so these people... They want to have a high quality experience and it doesn't just uh, the building itself has a lot to do with it but the operations has a lot to do with it as well and historically multifamily was just a very commodity business you know it's just how cheaply can you put up boxes for people to move into because they can't afford to buy a home and you know and i and again i don't care if you're a somebody making $500,000 a year or you make $40,000 a year, our goal is to provide you with a dignified, high-quality experience. And that doesn't necessarily mean you get to live in the nicest building in town uh, if you make $40,000 a year, but that means that you're going to be treated with dignity and respect, you know, even if you're a lower middle-income household. And to me, that's actually where one of the biggest areas of opportunity is in our industry because, and that comes back to being vertically integrated where we can control the resident experience. You know, we, you know, every employee at every asset we own is an employee of Roundhouse uh, and they are treated the same way that our acquisitions team and our development team who went to Ivy League schools are treated, right? We, in fact, they are, they are the people interacting with our customers every single day. And, you know, part of being a long-term owner, another advantage is, you know, if you work for a great star, not, not to name names, but if you work for a third-party manager and your clients are trading in and out of assets all the time and, you know, think, I mean, again, Wall Street people don't think about in these terms but that has an impact on the life of your residents, right? I mean, some of these value-add investments that trade, you know, every two or three years, like look, every two to three, oh, we're selling it, somebody else buying up, now we're selling it, somebody else. That has an actual impact on the life of the people living in that, that building, right? And it has an impact on the employees that are working in that building. And you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to that kind of thing. I've talked to some of my multi friends about integrating some of the stuff we do on the hospitality side into multifamily. Maybe it's combined use with a hotel and an apartment, but where the hotel is providing some services to the apartments or amenities that wouldn't make sense in a multifamily setting, but we already have in a hotel and we can offer it to those guests and we would like it because it's new captive audience. What are you doing for your more higher end products to differentiate yourself from institutional capital 
or other capital that just maybe doesn't get the opportunity that you see? Yeah, that's a, you know, I, I, I don't have a great answer to that question because my view kind of is in multi, I mean, outside of the very high end of multifamily, which in most markets doesn't even exist, but, you know, in Miami or LA or, you know, where you can rent apartments for $10,000 a month is a different <laughs> thing. But for everybody else in the world, you know, they just want value, right? And there's no amenity out there that a resident is going to say, oh my God, there's a climbing wall here. There's a golf simulator or there's a, you know, there's cucumbers in the water in the gym. Like that, none of that is going to, <laughs> you know, they might like it, you know, but ultimately, yeah, ultimately residents can, they're, they're not stupid. They know quality when they see it. They can walk into a unit and they can open the window and be like, wow, they, they might not think of it in exactly these terms, but like, that's a high quality window package, <laughs> right? Or, wow, you put a, you know, you know, higher quality appliances in the unit, or there's a brick facade instead of stucco. And it just, again, they're, they're not like internalizing it in the way the developer is internalizing, but they they can sense it, they can feel it. And so, to me, it's it's much less about specific amenities or you know flashy things. It's more about just the overall quality of an asset. But on the operational side, I do think again that's easier to differentiate yourself now, um, and it all starts with the employee experience. I mean, you guys in hospitality, you you know this, but in residential, it's just never been. I mean, these people are treated horribly historically right they're just they're a commodity right oh you're a maintenance guy you're a leasing agent or whatever you make 20 bucks an hour you know we don't pay any attention to you so if those people are treated well and they feel great that's going to pass on to to your residents which is our customer and again going back to my ranting about the financialization of <laughs> real estate you know, go into anybody's website and it's like, oh, we own 10,000 units or we own X million square feet, uh, whatever. They're speaking to their capital partners. That is their customer. And don't get me wrong, this is a capital intensive business and <laughs> you need to be able to speak to those people. But in my view, ultimately my customer is the people that are paying us rent every month and we want those people to be having the best experience possible. And that is who I'm speaking to. And so, you know, if you go onto our website, that's who we're speaking to. We're talking about our values. We're talking about our mission. And that's what resonates with our employees and with our residents. So is being vertically integrated for you is the advantage? It's not for deal flow. I don't think so necessarily. It seems like it's more for you to free up headache space or issues and to have a beautifully working operational arm that allow you to go do more deals without the friction that might come with multiple third-party managers or one third-party manager that's not your own. Yeah, there's two, two primary components. Well, kind of three. One is the resident experience, being able to control the resident experience, just what we were talking about which again, I think is one of the competitive advantages that you can have against a Blackstone in this industry. 
the other two are more financial. One is in any real estate operating company, you have some fixed overhead. Accounting is the obvious one or asset management perhaps. And being vertically integrated allows you to actually offset a lot of that, those costs, those fixed costs. And the third, which is something that people dismiss, but I, I view differently, which is it is a profitable business. It's a profitable business that has long-term uh, sticky recurring revenue streams. And in our case, because we don't sell that, because we hold long-term, you know, this is reliable income for many, many years. And it, you know, because we're at a scale now, it, it, it gives us a way to offset the need to do transactions when you shouldn't be doing transactions. <laughs> and in, in real estate, if you're a sponsor, you're typically relying either on non-recurring revenue streams that are high margin, but they're speculative, they're non-recurring. So those would be acquisition fees or development fees. Or you're making money from your promote, uh, which is also speculative. <laughs> I mean, we talked a little bit about this the other day, but it's hard when you're starting out to recruit high caliber people to work with you under that kind of framework. Because unless you have a really, really long track record or obvious you know, capital relationships, it's hard to go to some really high caliber young person and say, hey, why don't you roll the dice and come join me? <laughs> and I'm going to pay you out of these acquisition fees that we're going to make or these development fees that we're going to make. Oh, and by the way, you're going to, you know, get maybe some sliver of the promote down the road when we sell. And I, again, that's why we operated so leanly for so long, because I personally felt like I don't want to make, even if I could attract some of these people, I don't want to, you know, make them the promise that I can pay them these, you know, Wall Street salaries to come work for me when I know I have to do transactions to, to generate that kind of money. If it's just me, I don't care. I can live leanly for a year or two if I have to, or my partner was the same way. But so again, getting to, you know, our, our model works holistically in that we've got property management, which is sizable and profitable because of the cash flow based structures and the crystallization structures. We have a lot of passive income coming to the GP now. So we don't, you know, need to do a lot of transactions to get through any given year. And as you know, that's not the case for a lot of people in our industry. So, but it, again, it took 15 years of discipline to get to that point. So I want to talk about now what enterprise value means to you, because I think what's very common in the real estate world is that one guy or gal starts a business, maybe with a partner, and they're really just a deal shop. They're doing what you're saying. They're basically living on act fees and promotes, but they don't really have this infrastructure that's sustainable. And for me, the goal is to get to something that's sustainable. So you don't feel the need to do deals when it's not an opportune time to do deals or when there's not a deal in front of you to do. So I want to understand from you how that's changed in your business life from the start of the company to now. 
Great question, because it's something I think a lot about. And, you know, if I were to give one piece of advice to emerging real estate operators is just think strategically. Think about how you want the business to look 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Very few people do it because it is a very transactional, as you said, deal-oriented industry. And that's what a lot of people are attracted to. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it shouldn't prevent you from thinking towards the future. And, you know, my partner, Mike, he actually retired in 2018 because that was 10 years into the business. It had completely changed. And, you know, I think it had become more of what I had in my mind and less of what he had in his mind. And what that was in my mind was, to your question, enterprise value. And we can talk about what that means to me, but you can be two guys in a phone booth. We, you know, another way we describe it is the lean sponsor model. You don't need a lot of people to be successful in real estate. And again, there's nothing wrong with doing it that way. If that's, the, if that's who you are, do it that way. There's nothing wrong with that. But for me, I wanted to get to a point in my life where I can make money and not have to work. <laughs> and it sounds exactly. And, you know, when I was working on Wall Street, when I left, my boss came up to me and said, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. Pick a career where you can make money while you sleep. And, you know, real estate can be that if you do it the right way. But if you are, if you're two guys in a phone booth, you have to do deals to make money. And some people love it and they, they want to do deals until they're 80 years old. And I know lots of those people and some of them are very happy. But what does enterprise value mean to me? I mean, the, the way a lot of people think about it is, do you have you know, financial value in your business? Is it worth something? Which is a valid way to think about it. But to me, it is simply, can I not come into work tomorrow and my business will still operate and grow? And in fact, I took a six-month sabbatical last year from work and just handed everything off to my team. And I came back and the business was in as a better place than when I left it. And I didn't really check in at all. I didn't do any work. And, you know, my team is just incredibly strong, motivated, and motivated by our values and our mission. I mean, that's a framework for them to make decisions that I know if you're making decisions that are consistent with our values, you're making a good decision. So, that's the way I think about it. And, you know, again, property management is different in that it is, it's an operating business. You're you're charging people to to manage properties. They pay you every month and you make a margin on it. And the more properties you manage, the more money you're making. But a, a real estate GP really has no value unless you can create some type of recurring or sticky revenue. And so, if you think about fund structures, that can be, for example, you know, you've seen, look, Blackstone went public and companies like that have capitalized on value in the GP. 
I think you have to get really quite large for that to be true. But, but for me, it's if my team can operate, they can go, they can make investments, they can raise money without me, there's value to me in that. I have to properly incentivize them to do that. And, you know, my partner retiring actually was very helpful in that regard because it opened up 50% of the economics of the business <laughs> that I could then redistribute amongst some really talented, ambitious, you know, high-performing people who are motivated and are feel like owners of the business. And, you know, they know I started the company. They know I toiled for, <laughs> you know, all those years without a lot of resources. They, they, they respect me and I, you know, and, and I value them. And I think, uh, you know, I'm not ready to call it in yet, but <laughs> uh, that's, you know, that's my way of thinking long-term about the business and enterprise value. I love it. That's, that's my goal. That's where we're trying to go. What I think is interesting, though, is actually private equity firms, the ones we think of as the large capital providers, not necessarily our competitors, are actually set up to try and make you remain as almost two guys in a phone book. Because countless times I've been in negotiations where they're like, we don't pay acquisition fees. Or you're getting a, a property management fee, so we're not going to pay you an asset management fee or an investment management fee. So a lot of their goal is to basically make you an outsourced employee. And I'm generalizing it, and there's certainly variations of that. But I found it's very hard to create enterprise value and sticky revenues with non-sticky capital like institutional private equity capital. So do you think you're at a point where your team can actually raise capital without you? Because that's the hardest part. Close, close to it, yeah. But I mean, one point is, do your JV private equity partners get a, a carried interest? Do they get fees? Yes, they do, <laughs> right? So that's their business. That's a great business, right? They come, they find Jake. Jake does all the work. You find the deal. You're out there grinding, dealing with contractors and angry hotel guests. And, and you know, your private equity guys are just sitting there looking, oh, okay, Jake's doing all the work. This is great. I'm getting, the, I'm getting my carried interest. I'm getting my fees. I'm going to turn the screws on Jake. And is that good for the LP, in my, my opinion? No. Right? What is a private? Act? I mean, is look. I'm I'm being a little flippant here, but uh, but th what role do they provide? Well, if any, it is being able to find people like you and like me, who are good, trustworthy, reliable partners. It is you know. In large-scale private equity about being able to allocate capital in an efficient way, which is a real thing, although I don't think that is really true in like mid-market private equity. But what do they really do? They raise money. <laughs> you, as the sponsor, are in effect paying them to find LPs. And again, I'm generalizing, I'm being a little flippant, but 
that's the way I view it, right? And and if you can go out and you can raise capital directly, it's better for your LPs. Again, I know I'm not defrauding people. I know I'm reliable and trustworthy and I have a great team and we can execute and all this stuff. And that's not to say that that's true of everybody in our industry. There are lots of people that that are not reliable, but but ultimately for the LPs, you're not paying double fees, you're not paying double promotes, all the stuff. But then to get to your question, specifically, you know, in hedge fund business, private equity business, it's very hard to transition away from the founder. And, you know, I think there are good reasons for that. But at the same time, I think in a lot of cases, it's because the founders are not willing to give up control early enough. It's simple things like, you know, one of my, I was just with one of my best friends and from college in France. <laughs> last week and he was a partner at a very large hedge fund in Europe and he was not the founder but he was like employee number 2 or 3 or something and the founder you know this fund is very successful the founder is extraordinarily successful and you know he's the guy with all of the investor relations duties he's the guy with all the relationships with the Yale endowment and the Harvard endowment and blah 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 and you know, in some cases, it's just as simple as saying, okay, we're going to put other people in front of the Yale Endowment, and we're going to do that for three, four, five years, or however long it takes to transition those relationships so that it's not just a relationship of a single person. And we're going to set up systems and processes that give LPs comfort that, you know, again, it's not just some, you know, lone genius guy at the top. <laughs> right who is creating all the value and all the returns it's it's a it's a holistic enterprise it's it's something more than that which it almost always is by the way it's just a lot of these people you know that you read about in the wall street journal they love to be the guy that's in the wall street journal and take all the credit for all the work but again i think it's something you can't just do it overnight you can't just transition overnight but i think it's something that if you're thoughtful about you can you can do it over a period of years so I want to move now to your kind of like transition from a co-partnership to you running the firm. It probably went according to you in the way that you had always envisioned it. But I'm curious, what after the transition happened, did you kind of immediately implement or immediately start to turn the ship in a different direction that you couldn't do or it was awkward to do or you tell me the reason why you couldn't do it before you had bought your partner out. Great question. Yeah, and you know, most businesses in our arena are partnerships. You know, when you're starting out, I don't care if you're 25 or you've been working for decades and you decide to start something entrepreneurial, it's it's nice to have a partner. <laughs> it is a incredible burden to be an entrepreneur and to be responsible for employees and customers and whatever stakeholders you have in your business and to be able to share that burden with somebody else is very appealing and in the best cases they also bring complementary skill sets to the business as well and that was obviously true in my in my case with my partner 
But the challenge becomes, how do you have a unified vision for the business? Because with with very rare exceptions, or I mean, you, again, you're reading about all these stories now of these big hedge funds and VC funds and stuff. It's like, you know, high drama, you know, the Yellowstone of Wall Street, these, you know, guys that have partners, they become billionaires, but they won't talk to each other and, you know, all this kind of stuff. How do you have, and it, it, taking even the ego piece out of it, which is a real thing, like how do you have a unified vision of where you want your business to go? And even if you are fairly cohesive uh, with your partner, there's still an extra layer of decision-making and conversations that need to go into making strategic decisions that when you are solo, you don't have to do. And to, that was, you know, one of the biggest changes. And, and, you know, my partner and I are still great friends and, and I could not have started the business without him. But when he left, it just, for our our team, it created like a much more cohesive sense of, okay, I know what Casey's vision is. I know what where Casey wants to take this. It's much easier for them to then just say, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that. Uh, but specifically, when he left, we did, we spent a week with my uh, senior people on my team going through a strategic plan and, and actually articulating and writing down our mission and values. And our mission is to put humanity into housing. And um, we have four core values, which are elevating the built environment, pioneering spirit, belonging, and long-term focus. And it sounds trite, but it's probably one of the five best decisions that we've ever made as a business was actually putting pen to paper on the mission and values. Because we did this project in LA. It was one of our first ground-up developments called Blackbirds, 18-unit uh, housing project in Echo Park. Our architect, Barbara Bester, is just incredible, like incredible design. It won all these awards. And I would take people over there all the time and I would show it to them. And I would just assume that like all you need to do is take one look at this project and you can know everything you need to know about me. You can know everything I care about, what my values are, all this stuff. Turns out it's not true at all. <laughs> People look at it like, that's a really nice looking project. That's cool. You know, but like, that's all they would glean from Real estate people um, know, though. <laughs> and, but again, it's like, if you're on our construction team, I mean, I could, we, we could develop projects now and I could probably be involved in two to five percent of the decision making and they would be equivalently successful that's it and it's not because i just have these and i i mean i have incredible people on our development team and they're incredibly smart and hardworking. but what it is is that they know the framework from which to make decisions how do I select an architect or put together a team? Or how do I select a material or a building system that we're going to use? Or how do I, what, I, what land sites do I want to focus on? Again, all these things, we now have a framework from which to make these decisions that I don't have to sit there and say, well, 
here's the reason why we don't want to buy that land site, or here's the reason why we want to use brick and not stucco, or here's the reasons why we want to use this architect and not that architect. They can do like 98% of that. How do you coach that and how do you teach that? So like you have the four core values, but then how does that get translated down in real speak to a project manager or a head of development making decisions on location, architect, building materials, whatever it may be? Possibly the biggest leadership lesson I've learned is that I don't really believe in leadership by example. (laughs) And because again, I just always thought like, okay, well, you know, I come into the office early and I leave late and I work hard and I make good decisions and I do all these things that I'm modeling for other people. And then it just like, goes in one ear and out the other. <laughs> and again, I'm being slightly you know, hyperbolic, but I think there is a lot of truth to that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't try to set example, but I think what I've learned is that you need to be just so explicit about everything. Again, your values, how do you make decisions? Also, you need to write it down. You need to communicate it over and over and over again. And then it starts to sink in for people and it's empowering for them, right? Because they, they then, the light bulb clicks for them and they feel empowered and they can make decisions without being micromanaged or being, you know, dictated to. So it's taken a very, it took me a really long time to learn that lesson and I'm still not perfect at it, but that's the thing I'm most proud of in our business. I mean, again, I have a lot of people here at Roundhouse, who I just trust implicitly to make good decisions, and I do not need to stand over their shoulder um, for them to do it. That leadership trait is definitely one I suffer f- from as well. I would do the same things as you, but I also think it leads to more coaching opportunities because inevitably, if we're not explaining it to our colleagues, they are going to do something different than how we would have done it or how we would have liked it. And that creates these moments to coach. Whereas if you had a different personality, it might not have presented itself in that way. Yeah, it's not my natural inclination. (laughs) I'm a pretty reserved person. I just like to put my head down and work hard and get things done. And it's hard for me, but but I've learned that it's really important and valuable, and so I've, I've made an effort to, to communicate more and more explicitly. Um, and, and again, now it's like, it's so fun to see because it, it, it kind of takes on a life of its own, where initially, you know, if you're a founder of a business, it's just you setting the terms, setting the culture, the identity, all these things. But if, you're, if you do a good job of it, and then you 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 end up with other people in your team who become like evangelists for your values and for your culture and it like starts to just feed on itself in a very positive cyclical way and we i, I feel like we're in a great place with that right now and we can hire new people and i i don't feel like i personally have to you know articulate to them what our culture is and what the expectations for them are because it's it's so pervasive across our whole team now. You're the only person I can remember speaking with that has taken a six-month sabbatical and not sold their company. 
So other than the fact that the company didn't blow up and fall apart, what was the biggest insight that you gained after that six-month period? The biggest insight was, well, the biggest personal insight, which was the biggest insight, was that, you know, and I'm 43, and I'm not that old, but I feel pretty old. I've been doing this for a long time. And it's very hard to just like a break a routine or habits they just accumulate and build up and you get just so used to the way you operate and forcing yourself to take a break and, and to me what it, what it did was allow me to reprioritize other aspects of my life that you know i, I used to be the kind of person i'd i'd go to bed at night i'd be thinking about some work related meeting or call or whatever and i'd wake up in the morning and that's the first thing on my mind and that's all my whole focus and i'm a very focused very disciplined person and so i could always you know attack those things and get to them and then it was like okay i i i i did that thing today now i'm gonna have some space to go exercise or now i'm gonna have some space to eat something healthy, or now I'm gonna have some space to spend some time with my kids. As opposed to flipping that around in my case and saying, my priority tomorrow is to make lunch for my kids and drop them off at school and then go to the gym. And then I will, <laughs> you know, handle that phone call or work-related thing. And that has stuck for me. And I feel really good about it. And it's only possible because, you know, I do have a really great team. Uh, and that, that was the other big, biggest lesson is just, I mean, my, you know, a, a stupid example is my email volume. I mean, I, I've, it's been a year since I came back from my sabbatical. My email volume is still like one-tenth of what, what it was before I left. <laughs> because people, when I was gone, realized, oh, if I need an answer, I need to reach out to somebody else. And then, oh, it turns out that person can actually answer my question. That person can actually help me. And then they just keep going back to that person and not me. It's fantastic. That's amazing. So you just did one big delete of all your emails after six months. And if it was big enough, I would have heard about it already. For someone thinking about doing something like this, whether it's for a month or six months, what would you recommend they do practically, and then also on the sabbatical? So, the most important thing is that you plan for it. And I told Katie, my COO, at least a year in advance. I can't remember. I think it might have been more than a year. And totally plan for it. And, and, and again, it's not like you just peace out one day. <laughs> You're like, look, here is... <laughs> Here, you have authority to do X, Y, and Z. You have authority to make an investment <laughs> while I am out. You have authority to reach out to our capital partners to capitalize an investment. I mean, at that level, of, in my case. And they did. They did. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of other people who have taken sabbaticals. And I purposely left mine fairly open-ended because I am the type of person who would program in like a very specific agenda that I decided not to do that. And that turned out to work really well for me. It, uh, just serendipitously, my wife actually opened a wine uh, 
bar and restaurant in Ketchum, Idaho, where we live, while I was on my sabbatical. And so you became a busboy? I, in fact, I did. <laughs> but I also got to take over more of the, you know, childcare responsibilities and just be the person who it's not like, you know, in my case, previously with my wife, it was like, okay, if she needs me to do something, she'll ask me to do it. And then I'll do it as opposed to me being the person who's proactively making sure the lunch is made and the, you know, teeth are brushed and those types of things. So that was actually turned out to be really fun for me. I read a lot, uh, which was the other great part. I finally, after 20 years of trying to play golf effectively, figured it out a little bit, <laughs> which was fun. It was a great, I mean, and we live like in a resort community, so it was a great place to be spending six months out of work. And I'll probably take another sabbatical before I retire. <laughs> what would you do differently? I think the next time I would program in some like, you know, bucket list types of things that I wanted to do. And I would probably do it when the kids are a little bit older, so it'd be easier, easier to execute. That'd be what I would do the next time around. So last question on this, when you come back to the office and you're kind of getting briefed on everything that happened, are you looking back and coaching some of the things that happened? Or are you just saying they made the decisions? I'm not going to say anything about it. We're moving forward with all of those decisions and that's it. I tried not to do too much Monday morning quarterbacking. I did a little bit, but not a ton. I mean, it, you know, I, of course, I probably should have taken my sabbatical in 2023, but 2022 was the next best year to do it because, you know, again, my team didn't feel like they had to go out and, and do a bunch of deals while I was out uh, to, to justify themselves. They focused a lot on the business operations and actually running the company, recruiting people and focusing on the company culture. And those were all really hugely positive things. But, you know, because of this period of time that we're in now in the real estate cycle, we've done a lot of self-reflection. And I put together my list of roundhouse commandments a few months ago, which is probably like 30 different lessons that I've internalized over my uh, 15 years of doing this. And by no means am I a grizzled veteran at this point. A lot of people have been doing it a lot longer than me. But again, I think it's just, it's okay to, it's, it's, it's not only is it okay, but it's extremely helpful to put boundaries on yourself. You know, that firm Nalls that I mentioned to you, they do one very specific thing and they do it incredibly well. Nobody knows who they are. And they just, they never, they've been doing it long enough. They never deviate. They never go outside of their box. And, you know, it's up to you as an entrepreneur to define what your box is and how big it might be. And some people are more ambitious than other people, but it's, it's, again, it's very, it, to me at least, it's very helpful to just say, these are ways in which I operate. These are decision-making frameworks that I use. These are things that I will never do, I will never compromise on, no matter how tantalizing they might be, and to hold yourself accountable to that. And 
it's I've actually it's it's been fun for me to to kind of constrain myself in that way. I want to bring it home with a little bit about the design and the emphasis on design that you place in all your buildings, and maybe you could just talk to us about why that's so important for most of the buildings that you've done. There's two main reasons why I focus on design or we focus on design outside of the fact that I just think, why the hell not? Right. I mean, <laughs> like why, you know, again, it doesn't really cost more if at all, it just takes more planning and, and, and thoughtfulness. Why not care about it? But practically speaking, I think, you know, people live in our communities. They wake up every day, they walk down the hall, go down the elevator, whatever they're doing. If you can have even just a slightly incremental improvement on their daily experience because they are inspired or they feel proud of where they live or whatever, like, why, why wouldn't you not do that? And then the, the second piece is, again, durability and, and, ti and timelessness. You know, I love, I'm not an ideologue about design. I love all types of design. I love classical design. I love art deco design. I love modernist design. I love all kinds of things. But it's about trying your best to create timeless buildings. I mean, you, you know, again, Elevating the built environment is one of our core values. You are going, you know, if you if you put a drive-through Panera Bread in downtown Boise, Idaho, it is going to be there for like thirty years, <laughs> right? I mean, it is it is going to have an impact on the built environment for decades. Millions of people will drive by that. Millions of people will experience that. It's going to have an influence on their lives, even if it's small. So trying to be a steward of our, you know, built environment and engage civically in that way is very important to me. And we're always trying to improve. We're not perfect at it, but I do think it's one of the more fun and interesting parts of the business for me. I asked all the guests in the pod the same closing question, and that is, what is your favorite hotel? You don't have to pick one, pick a couple. Hard to pick one, but I was thinking about it, and the one I would throw out is the Moncas Lodge in Inverness, California. It is, I don't maybe 15, 20 rooms. I think it's actually being renovated right now, but it's on the coast north of San Francisco, and it's, you know, there are no TVs, no phones in the room. In the morning, they, like, make homemade yogurt, and someone will knock on your little on your cabin door and just run away before you even open the door you know and uh, it's such a unique you know because so much of hospitality now is so like over the top and trying to provide this very uh, bespoke customer service and you know we just got back from we were in paris last week and you know staying in these fancy hotels and it's fun you know i love i love those hotels too but there's something to me about just being in this very austere but extremely well designed environment you know just out in nature and eating homemade yogurt that i i loved it's awesome you know uh your friend picked that hotel as his favorite hotel as well 
You're kidding me. No, that means I'm going there. Oh, Two repeat favorite hotels. We all got to go and uh, do like a little retreat there or something. I did not know that. Although I think I sent him there, though. You probably did. I could be, I could be wrong. But, What's your favorite uh, hotel in Paris? The Ritz. Yeah. Because I studied abroad in Paris and college and had absolutely no money. Didn't have two nickels to rub together, but my friend and I would, as our one indulgence, we would go to the Hemingway Bar every couple of weeks. And Colin Field is the bartender there. He's still there. <laughs> and it was just like this very aspirational, you know, thing for us. And I'm pleased to say that, you know, I was just at the Hemingway Bar last week with my wife and <laughs> it was still awesome. It's amazing. We were there a couple weeks ago. Amazing hotel, best pool actually for kids too. But it feels like going back into a different world or a different time. Yeah, they they think about things differently in France in a way that I very much respect and appreciate. <laughs> Artisans, thanks for coming on the podcast, Casey. It was amazing. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.